Welcome back to the OIS Podcast. We're gearing up for our Presbyopia Innovation Showcase, taking place on January 28th at 1 p.m. Eastern, and we would love for you to join us. You can save your spot by registering on OIS.net. This week, we're taking a quick look back at some key 2020 takeaways from our Year in Review Summit last month. Our host, Dr. William Link, oversees a unique panel discussion featuring five seasoned ophthalmic investors. Listen as we walk through what the experts see as fertile opportunities for investments and how to maximize the value of your 2021 portfolio. Lots to learn and hear, so let's get started. Okay, next, um, we're going to hear our perspectives uh, for investing in ophthalmology uh, in the year 2020. Uh, and before and beyond 2020 uh, from uh, five very active um, investors that have been engaged in healthcare investing for an extended period and have uh, also uh, direct experience in the ophthalmic sector. Uh, as we know, um, we're just um, exiting the year 2020. And when we entered 2020, we had no idea of the impact uh, and the change that the COVID pandemic uh, would have. And so it'll be interesting for us uh, to share our thoughts and experiences and observations from an investor's perspective today on how, uh, how 2020 has gone and what our expectations are uh, for uh, 2021 and beyond. To what I thought we would do as a starting point um, we would um, have each panelist uh, introduce themselves, give some personal background, as well as um, um, talk about their firm, and then specifically what activity and investments uh, they've made in, in the ophthalmic sector. And Anat, please introduce yourself. Hi, uh, my name is Anat Nashis. I'm uh, with Orbimed in Israel. In terms of my own background, I've been in this space for 25 years, not specifically ophthalmology, but in healthcare, through various stations, including McKinsey and APAX, and then being part of creating Orbimed in Israel. Very much like ophthalmology, I've made a number of investments. Uh, obviously, the firm in general has made uh, quite a lot. Uh, I specifically have invested in a couple of companies I believe in very strongly. One is called Azura, which is a meibomian gland dysfunction company um, with so far quite exciting data, uh, phase two. And the other one is Foresight Vision 6, which has an accommodating IOL, which actually is accommodating. Again, quite exciting so far, and Bill, you know that really well. Uh, so that's me, and I have good expectations for 2021 in ophthalmology, and we'll talk about that later. Okay, very good. Ali, please. Hi, everyone. Uh, Ali Babahani. I uh, work at uh, New Enterprise Associates. Uh, We're currently investing in EA17, which is a $3.6 billion fund. We do both tech and healthcare. I only focus on the healthcare side. Uh, and ophthalmology is an area that we love. Um, and we've done a number of things, both on the drug and the device side, uh, with uh, many of the folks uh, on this call. And um, 
and everything from, you know, things like Oculeve uh, in the dry eye space in Oyster Point to devices uh, like ClearVista and, you know, sort of across all stages um, on the on the drug and device side. Thanks, Bill. I'm with HIG Capital. Uh, HIG is about a $42 billion private equity firm. And I'm one of the co-heads of what's called HIG BioHealth Partners, which is the healthcare product fund. It's actually our only sector fund. Uh, the rest of the firm is generalist. We, uh, on the, in the biohealth fund, we invest, uh, with a fairly broad main mandate across drugs, devices, uh, all forms of drugs, um, uh, and clinical diagnostics. We've also been fairly aggressive in the eye space. We've invested in a drug company called Iconic Therapeutics with a novel tissue factor targeting drug for wet AMD. Uh, on the device side, uh, we've invested with Bill in RX Site, which is a novel IOL. It allows the physician to uh, effectively tune the vision post-op using UV light. It's a UV curable lens. And then we were also investors also with Bill in Foresight Vision 5, which we sold to Allergan, which is the uh, bromatoprost eluting ring for glaucoma. The firm uh, has also been active in ophthalmology on the service side. HIG Capital, our LBO fund, uh, bought two of the largest ophthalmic practices in the U.S., Barnett and Delaney and Southwest Eye and rolled them together in what's now called American Vision Partners. I'm not personally involved in that deal, but I believe it's now uh, the largest or certainly one of the largest ophthalmic practices in the US. So it's, a, it's an area we've been very aggressive in and we remain bullish on. And uh, I look forward to all the predictions. I gave a talk in New England and Boston right after JP Morgan on my predictions for 2020. And amazingly, I did not predict a global pandemic anywhere in my presentation. So. Uh, We'll see if I can be any more accurate this year than I was last year. Yeah, try to try to get it right, will you? I'll, I'll do my best, Bill. Okay. Arjun. Thanks, Bill. Um, I'm a director at KKR, and um, I think KKR is a firm that's now more than $200 billion of assets, but I'll try and deconstruct it a little bit. We invest mostly in equity um, across various regions of the world. I sit in our healthcare sleeve here in the US. I have been there for a little over eight years now. And the exercise that, that we organize ourselves in is how do we find interesting equity investment ideas across early stage private equity and then what we call core private equity to continue to invest. and. I think the way we have approached it is really thematically on the specific area, therapeutic area that we approach. Ophthalmology is one that we certainly share everybody's enthusiasm for. Uh, I think it's a great space uh, with the right growth levers. And I think in our growth end of the spectrum, we are more involved on products, both medical devices and pharmaceuticals. Uh, but as we mature in ophthalmology, I have the privilege of seeing some of those services business uh, that Bruce mentioned as well. So it's a, it's a whole fulsome experience. You know, specifically for this audience, I think we, the most direct correlated investment is Falcon Vision, uh, which I'm involved with, that does do both medical devices and biopharma. And I think a uh, couple of examples, not to go down that chain, but with Ali on, and Bill on Oyster Point, and then with others, um, with Bill on Corneagen and others. So I think the commitment to the space is very real from us, and we hope to continue to grow that. 
Oh, thanks for that, uh, Arjun and uh, Jeff. Thanks, Bill. Um, I think Arjun has a really interesting perspective, which is how do you really find and, and work through the best deals? So um, this is a fertile space and, and uh, we're partnered with 80 of the leading key opinion leader doctors, both as investors and partners in our fund, which helps us with insight into deal flow and, and clinical utility. But it's a wonderful space. You know, when I hear uh, Arjun talk about 200 billion, my eyes get big and I, I really am very impressed. We're investing a couple hundred million out of our second fund. And, um, we invest across the eye and we really invest solely in the eye. So whether it's front of the eye, ocular surface, um, glaucoma, cataract surgery, back of the eye is challenging for us, but we're still there. And we just, um, we've got a dozen portfolio companies and I won't drag you through all of them. It's boring, but. Um, it's a it's a wonderful environment, and I think it's a great opportunity. So we've had some success in realizations, and I think uh, this panel is very useful for thinking about how you monitor and and, and uh, maximize the value of your portfolio. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that. Uh, maybe just a quick update on my activity. As uh, many of you know, I was a founder at Versant, and um, which is a healthcare focused uh, fund and firm rather, and was an active uh, partner and investor through Versant 5. And then uh, in 2016, early 2017, I formed a, a partnership uh, called Flying L Partners. And we are uh, focused entirely, pun intended, on the ophthalmic space. Um, and we've now made uh, 11 uh, investments and put just about uh, $200 million uh, at work in, in the sector. Love to be broad, uh, both on the um, device med tech side as well as uh, on the biopharma side. And, and uh, I think everybody uh, here we've uh, co-invested with. So uh, thanks uh, for being good, good partners. You. Uh, <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> the, I thought it would be uh, interesting. We're going to try our best not to talk about COVID the entire time. <laughs> but let's start with that. And, and Bruce, you highlighted that you know none of us uh, knew it was coming. And uh, maybe Arjun, why don't you share your perspective on the impact COVID it ha has had primarily on portfolio mm -hmm. companies. Then we're going to talk about future new investments, the impact there. But uh, if you want to lead that process and we'll all uh, chime in. Happy to do so. Well, I would say that in the beginning of 2020, I didn't guess COVID either. Uh, <laughs> but the immediate reaction was, if we look at our portfolio, services certainly had a meaningful hit. And I think anything that was linked to surgical volume had that kind of impact. And the curve was deep and the curve up was sharp, just not as sharp as how deep it was. And I think that was just noticeable in all the surgical implant businesses that we have um, and the services businesses. I think where we did notice where it was faster than I think even I would have expected going into COVID was the rebound on the pharmaceutical side. And I think the, both the pace of the rebound and the willingness to purchase uh, from the consumer was incredibly high. And in some cases, 
we actually saw those rise above where we were uh, entering COVID. So I think the, it was really a year of two worlds. One was the world of the surgical-oriented devices and services, and the other was biopharmaceuticals, which came back incredibly fast. So I think, you know, for us, it was just balancing those two worlds. And in 2020, from a portfolio lens, it was easier to lean into biopharma. Uh, with that, I'll pause. I know others will have a lot more to add around that, but I think that was one of our decisions as we sort of got into the spring, really, of 2020. And uh, maybe why don't you share what your observations were of the impact of COVID on, on the existing portfolio? Sure. And I'll actually divide into pharma and others for different reasons from the ones that Arjun mentioned. I think I'll start with the pharma side. Uh, while we have seen a lot of enthusiasm for biopharma in general, which continues, which I'm thrilled about, uh, yes, there have been some operational uh, hiccups, shall we say, right? Because there have been trials that have had to be very creative. There were sites, for example, one of our companies had a number of sites, part of who, part of which were in regions that were under lockdown, part of which were not. So, so you were con constantly juggling that landscape just to deliver on the trial. And yet that has worked out, which is a miracle in its own right, because if you think about it, you know, a number of sites shut down, yet you accomplish your target. So I think that has required uh, agility and flexibility and creativity, which is uh, always a good thing. And I'm happy to say that nothing happened um, and, and things are good. I think actually on the non-pharma side, I've been lucky enough to have invested in companies that have benefited from COVID. So for example, on the non-ophthalmic side, we have a company called TidoCare, which is a telemedicine device platform. And that, as you might imagine, has been quite popular uh, and has done really well. And we have another company called MD Clone, which is a digital health uh, data, um, synthetic data and platform analysis. And that, too, has shifted to a more COVID-oriented research offering. So all of those things have actually morphed into stuff that benefited from uh, the fairly unusual circumstances. So, yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thanks for that. Ali, why don't you share a bit on impact on portfolio, but think forward. What As COVID swept uh, through the world, how did you, how did it impact your thinking on new investments as well? Yeah, I mean, you know, so I, I, I recall, you know, when we were in, you know, mid-April when the Dow was falling 2,000 points every day, I mean, it, it certainly looked like it was going to be a bleak, bleak year to come, right? Um, and I think everyone was, you know, first trying to figure out what's the impact to kind of the investments that we've already made, right? And and I think as Arjun pointed out, you know, I mean, co companies that were commercial went from, you know, you could have had a few million in, in revenues per month to a hundred thousand. So it was it was pretty jarring. And I think um, it, it's all it feels like so long ago, but it wasn't really that long ago. And it, it's it's hard to to remember kind of those times. But I think initially it was you know, just trying to figure out, you know, um, how to save companies. You know, if you recall, there was all this back and forth around the, the PPP loans and whether you should take them or not. And, you know, and certainly um, feels like that was uh, ages ago. Um, but, but you know, one of the, the most remarkable things was, um, you know, just I think investors started to do things in a different way, right? Humans are great at just adapting to situations. And so in the midst of probably one of the worst kind of Dow drops in a long time that that we've seen, 
you know, you had um, a few companies starting to go public. And I remember at that time, I just, I, I was sort of scratching my head when Zentalis and Oric and a few others, you know, decided that they were going to make a go of it. And, and listen, I mean, it, and I thought it was going to be pretty ugly and crash and burn, but it, it turned out to be exactly the opposite, right? You had, you know, investor you know, that the roadshows went from, you know, a, a week and a half where you, you know, go on, on a, playing to different cities to being a four-day roadshow all virtually. And, and not only did those IPOs actually get done, but they not only got done, but they they got done and raised a lot more money and, and the aftermarket traded really well. And so I think, you know, that was really sort of interesting in the beginning of kind of, okay, well, you know, it's, it's um, while this is a global sort of pandemic, you know, that they, um, and while, you know, at least, you know, there are parts of the economy that were being very negatively affected, that there might be um, actually just a different way of doing things. And so, you know, moving forward from there, it's been, it's been amazing to see in biopharma, you've, you've had just an epic run of companies getting public, a lot of capital being raised. Actually, that sort of started to bleed to the device side, finally, where you've seen, you know, companies um, on the device side getting public and not only just, you know, raising the capital, but, but really trading um, really well. And then that also then led to kind of on the, on the private investing side as well, right? Where, um, we all started doing things differently, right? And, you know, doing board meetings virtually, doing new company meetings virtually, um, and actually, you know, making investments, even if you, you know, in, in some things where, you know, you hadn't maybe met the team live, right, in person, which, you know, if you would have asked me that would happen in April, I would have told you that that just seems really hard. But, but you know, like everything, we've all adapted. And I think, you know, when all is said and done and we look at kind of, you know, maybe the the pace on on the venture side in terms of investments isn't going to be as great as it was in 2019, but it's not going to be that far off. And I think, um, you know, some of what John Norris probably will show is is that's likely to be the case. And so, you know, we've all adapted. We're all making, you know, looking still to deploy capital. We're all looking forward towards making new investments, both ophthalmology and outside of ophthalmology. And um, and, but just doing it in a different way. And, um, and I think, you know, I think that's a lot of that is due to kind of the public markets being open and um, companies being able to raise money and, and go public. And I think that's sort of as led to, you know, private investments continuing. And certainly we've been making investments just as I'm sure everyone else has. And, um, you know, at, at least for the foreseeable future, it looks like that will continue. Thanks. Uh, other thoughts or observations? Well, I, I think something that's been said over and over in general, but true, I love the adaptability of humans. And I actually think that I hope that we're all going to learn a few lessons from this that will be lasting, such as travel is okay, but we shouldn't overdo it. Not always the best idea in the world, and we can do things more efficiently sometimes without it. Yeah. Yeah. So, Bill, I, I think one of the other things that came out of this is as shocking as it sounds that this needed to happen. Certainly, the American public and probably globally was reminded that the healthcare industry and particularly things like pharmaceuticals, vaccines, spillover even into medical devices, is actually something they really need. Uh, you know, historically, these are not industries that poll well in public opinion polls, which has always been shocking to me, given the life-saving efforts of R&D in these industries. And yet, we don't poll particularly well. And I think there's been a lot of political rhetoric around drug pricing and things like that, that tends to, to uh, increase the negative feelings for our industry. And I think one of the things that came out of this just in general is people were reminded that we actually, our, our companies are really doing good things. And yes, they make money along the way. Sometimes we do too, but 
uh, but these are companies that are doing good things for you know for humanity if you will absolutely yeah. a, a terrific time candidly as always to be in the healthcare space isn't it yeah you know whether it's on the you know the telemedicine side or the surgical side or or the biopharma side it's uh, we're we're needed more than ever uh, very satisfying let's talk about the ophthalmic uh, sector itself what what provides um, attractiveness for investing in the ophthalmic sector and you know we can start on that maybe bruce why don't, why don't you start and then we'll just go around so I'll, I'll start by saying hig has never been a thematic investor so uh, in all candor we don't go out in any given year and say, let's look for more ophthalmology deals or let's look for oncology deals. We're more opportunistic than that. We're more about trying to see everything and let, uh, as uh, one of Ali's former partners told me early in my career, Jim Barrett said, I'll let the entrepreneurs show me where the opportunities are. I'm not smart enough to figure out where they are. Having said that, we are bullish on ophthalmology and have been for a while. Some of it is the sort of the basic reasons I think everybody knows, aging population, Nice thing about eye diseases is most of them tend to be diseases of the aging. Uh, when I'm sitting across the table from a 30-year-old analyst at one of our LPs pitching our next fund, and I talk about our cataract deal, I look at him and say, you're going to get cataract surgery. Just a question of when. And if you don't, that's bad news because you just didn't make it there. So uh, the overall basic dynamics are in place and will remain so for a while. Some of the other things we like about ophthalmology, uh, and this is true, uh, even on the service side, is uh, unlike some other fields of medicine, the, the practitioners and their practices tend to be quite business focused. So uh, as you think about, you know, even things like recovering from the pandemic, you know, we were nervous about surgical volumes and cataract. And yet, you know, Bill, I think you were the one, one of the ones who reassured me on that board. These are business oriented docs. They're going to figure out a way to get their businesses running again. And of course, provide the treatments that their patients need, but there's a certain level of business focus that is not present in all clinical uh, indications. One of the other things we like is uh, the evolution of the, uh, the ODs, the optometric practices as sort of a, uh, if you will, a primary care part of ophthalmology as they lost some of their business in spectacles and contact lenses to the cheaper sources, uh, they and many of them became more clinical. Uh, it provides another avenue for our products, uh, particularly those that have to get diagnosed in the OD segment and then referred into the into the MD ophthalmology sector. So uh, those are some of the things we like. There's also just generally been a good history of adopting new technologies, new drugs, new devices. If they work, have good data and provide better patient care. It's a field that tends to move fairly quickly on adopting new technology. Again, there's some sectors that are very slow there. So, uh, so there are good opportunities for new technology. And I, and I guess if there's a, if there's a negative, uh, it may be fewer M&A buyers in the space, but they're active M&A buyers when they're new technology. And with all due respect to, to our colleagues and some of those bigger companies are not as innovative as they once were. And I think they do look to our, little companies to provide that innovation. So when you when you do come up with a good product and you can prove it out in the market, especially if you prove it in the market, there's usually a home for it. And as as Ali referenced earlier, we're finally seeing the public markets be more receptive too. And I, I think we've all seen good activity in the public markets. And you know, five or six years ago, even when we wrote an investment thesis or investment memo around a 
a new device deal, ophthalmic, uh, ophthalmic or otherwise, we almost put no value at all on a potential IPO. And now I think it's credible that if you can show a path to 20 or 30 million in revenue and growth, that that, at least as the capital markets stand today, is a, a very viable potential exit strategy. So those are just some of the things that we see as, uh, as attractive factors in the sector. Yeah. Other thoughts? I think, as Bruce said, the fact that IPOs are actually an option changes the dynamics quite a lot. Because when you have a concentrated buyer universe, there is always the threat. First of all, that affects pricing. And second of all, there's always the, the, the concern that it may or may not happen. It becomes a lot more risky from that standpoint. So I think that's, that's a huge one. But the other thing that's maybe obvious, but maybe not, there's actually quite a lot of need in this space, right? Because in many areas and in many of the subsectors, we're still treating symptoms, we're still treating outcomes. We're actually not treating the underlying cause of the Dry eye is a good example. That's why I invested in the Grand So I think that next wave of let's look at what's causing the profit is, is happening. And that's to me part of the attraction. Just one to volunteer is um, unlike even other specialties, ophthalmology has the real engagement from the patient whether it's reimbursement when they are Medicare coming or where they are not, there's willingness to go out of pocket. I mean, premium IOL is a great example of where that occurs. And that engagement and willingness to pay attaches to a really strong base need. And I think it creates that tailwind for all the innovation that comes after. So I think that's, that's incredibly impactful. And the second is, I think where we've mentioned there's a lot of unmet need in the different disease areas we've gone after many of the ones that were immediately obvious but as you get deeper and deeper into dry eye and amd there's just more there that can be accessed and i think that continues to support a fertile landscape ahead yeah and one of the points i like to remind myself of in terms of this market is there's age-related and disease-based demand and need and there's vision um, improvement uh, and some of it overlaps you know such as cataracts develop and you need surgery to improve vision but we have you know the optometric channel we have the ophthalmic surgical uh, channel um, and so forth and so it's a very um, you know parallel market many of the healthcare market sectors that we go after are all about the disease. And here we've got both lifestyle vision as well as disease. So it, it doubles up and then they, they overlap as well. When we think about, and we've talked a little bit about this, but it's, it's an exciting, interesting time regarding potential exits. Obviously, as we're going through our process to evaluate a uh, an opportunity uh, to support and invest in, we must always think forward to what, what's the exit path and so forth. So let, let's drill down just a bit more uh, there, maybe start on the industry side uh, of how ophthalmology compares to other sectors that, that you're involved in. Ali, maybe uh, if you don't mind, we'll start with you. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think um, it's been echoed, you know, I, I think in some respects, it's great where you have a few, you know, companies that are focused on ophthalmology, right? Um, you know, whether it's um, the J&Js of the world or Alcons or, you know, soon uh, 
hopefully spun out BNL. And and I think that's great, right? They're, you know that they're going to be interested. You know that they need to drive growth in their businesses. And so, and and not unlike and you know, most other biotech and device companies, right? A lot of that growth comes from smaller companies. So I think that is it's great that you have sort of that focused audience. I'd say that maybe the negative is, you know, it, it's a it's a handful or a small universe of those folks, right? So you wish, you know, like the, the one of the great things about sort of the big pharma world, and again, each of them will have different areas that they want to focus on. It's just a much wider universe, right? So if you went and, you know, um, had a, a drug for oncology, you know, just the universe of potential buyers are just a lot greater than maybe ophthalmology. But so I think that's sort of the, the good and the bad. Um, you know, the thing that I love is the sort of pointed this out, which is, you know, if you have a, an IPO market where you can raise um, significant capital, you can, you know, you can take a company and, and control your own destiny by raising that public capital. And so, you know, and that's what I love. I love, I always go into an investment thinking, how can I build a big company? And to build a big company, though, requires a lot of capital, whether it's a drug or a device. And so and, and I do think, you know, obviously private investments important in terms of helping get those companies going. But ultimately, to really scale, you need you need public investors to um, partner alongside of you. And so that's how I always think about it. How do you build a big company? You know, if you have the capital, and you can raise it. That's great. And then, you know, all, along the way and, and Bill, you're a master of this. There may be interest from a, um, a strategic to come along and say, okay, they sort of see a vision where this company could be part of their business and help them grow. Um, and, you know, and at that time, you know, it, you can always assess whether that makes sense to do or not. Um, but I think it's been a vibrant, you know, from certainly, you know, the, the ophthalmic players, the strategics have had a keen interest on, on small companies for a long time. And, uh, and I think that need is only going to continue to grow as their businesses grow, right? Because it gets, you know, once once you get start to get to big, bigger and bigger scale, it gets harder and harder to grow. And so you do need, you know, if, if their R&D isn't as productive, they're going to need to look to the outside to help, you know, drive um, future sort of growth. Jeff, how do you think about the exit side? Well, um, you know, I think that it's good that a number of our strategics have improved their lot in life. Having Alcon as an independent company is a very powerful benefit to the industry. J&J has all the money in the world if they want to play. Um, and I think that the some of the other companies that are emerging and actually starting to act like like mini majors, if for want of a better term, are you know the folks like Glaucos have decided that they're going to build a big company, and I think that provides us more buying power. And, and uh, you know, folks like Beaver Visitech are kind of making a splash in cataract surgery going forward, and they've got lenses coming. So I think there's going to be more and more, you know, for me, and I tend to be pretty financially oriented, as you know, Bill, um, I, I think the IPO alternatives that have emerged in the last year are marvelous options for us, but that we really have to price our rounds correctly so that we have enough we have enough, you know, room for value to grow so that each subsequent round in those on those IPO transactions has an ability to make money. And and so that means we have to be very disciplined in, in the initial valuations. Other thoughts? Yeah, I would just respond quickly to something Ali said around building a business, not uh, getting overly focused on the exit. And I think probably we in the venture industry are as guilty as anyone about thinking about the exit on day one. After all, it is how we get paid. 
Uh, on the other hand, you know, the flip side of Ali's, what I think is a very good point is, uh, I do see companies sometimes get overly focused on building a company to be sold. And you find yourself in this, you know, what would Alcon want? What would J&J want? And you build to that as opposed to having a long-term vision for building a great business. And you get to that point that you think you can sell the company on, whether it's data or some level of sales or whatever it is. And you find out that's not a point for M&A. And you have not strategically thought about the next step and how you build a company. And I think I agree with Ali 100%. If you build a great business and you just are running it that way, that's the best way to get a company acquired because the big strategics will know about you and they'll be interested and they'll intervene and acquire you when it's when the right time is uh, is for them. Uh, and unfortunately, as hard as I've tried in my career, I've never been able to dictate the timeline of an acquisition to a big strategic. And uh, I think the best antidote to that is build a great business and keep your head down and at the right time. If there's no M&A, then again, hopefully the IPO window will remain open for us. Arjun, when, when you're doing your analysis for an investment, do you do a, a kind of a high-level financial plan all the way to you know uh, cash flow positive? What kind of metrics do you like to look at downstream? Yeah. Look, I would say, I think where Bruce started, this was a space where the number of strategics were lower and to just point, they were tied up. I actually think a lot of that hasn't changed in the way Jeff talked about. Number of them are coming out from their corporate structures, and there are the mini majors that are showing up in very real ways in some cases. The other is just a standalone company build. So when we do it, I think we generally flow the companies out to where they can support an IPO, and we have to believe that that is a conceivable outcome. And what that helps us do is just point, we, it helps us control valuation to allow for those exits. But then we're also constantly minding the store on all the strategics who are, while still less than other sectors, and certainly in, compared to oncology will be less, uh, but relative to three years ago, they're meaningfully higher. And I think for us, it's important to make sure there's this base plan, which is supportable. And the second is to make sure that we can then interact with all the strategics from a position of offense to try and figure out when is the right time for them to leap into any given company. Yeah. And I would just share along that line that when I first got into the investment business, you know, when we formed um, Versant, I think it was in 99, um, we were building companies to sell them. That, and I was a med device, you know, ophthalmic focused person at the time. And um, we did not think about a standalone path long term. And then we, you know, were forced for appropriate reasons to change that perspective. And, and so now, you know, as those of us uh, in this conversation know that you know, we have to be able to control our own destiny. We can't call the timing on when a strategic will be ready. Um, and you know, the company might be ready that we have invested in, but who knows whether there'll be an interested strategic at eight, uh, an appropriate time. So, so the standalone path is now, I think, our primary path. Let, let's talk a, a bit about which areas within the broad ophthalmic envision sector that you find intriguing. Um, 
you know, we've got back of the eye, we've got ocular surface and, and so forth. And not maybe why don't, why don't you start and we'll just uh, make sure all of us chime in a little bit on what part of the, this sector we put as high priority and uh, high opportunity. Let me start by saying that there are opportunities in all of them, because I think per my prior statement, in general, I think in ophthalmology, I might be exaggerating just a little bit, but we're still at the step of addressing symptoms and improving sometimes with formulations and things and not actually going to the core of the disease. So I think across the board, there are opportunities to go to the root cause and there are opportunities to create disease modifying therapeutics. And to me, that would be something compelling no matter what the indication. I've personally selected, as I've shared with you before, already a few of them, uh, not to say that there aren't opportunities elsewhere. So I do believe that dry eyes is a gigantic market that's being underserved and the solutions that are emerging uh, beyond what's already marketed are still, I think, to some extent, addressing the outcome and not the cause, which is why I believe meibomian gland disorder, potentially other things, are an important sector, uh, subsector to focus on. Uh, same with cataract, as you pointed out before, everybody gets it. Um, I think Bruce pointed that out. So again, the solutions are, are not quite perfect and there's quite a lot to do there. I think in back of the eyes, we all know uh, there's a lot to do uh, in terms of reducing the invasiveness of the solutions that are available uh, and just uh, increasing the outcomes in terms of acuity and other things. So, um, you know, and beyond those gigantic ones, there's still a host of uh, gene therapy oriented opportunities that have been attractive uh, already and will continue to be so. So I, I think to me, I'm quite open in terms of the indication I'm more interested in. Are you able to solve a problem or are you just solving the symptom? That's kind of my thing here. Got it. Others? I think you've made a very relevant point, which is we haven't solved the eye. There's so many things that haven't been fixed yet. There are also other things that are kind of something that is a crossover between um, you know, a lifestyle drug and a therapeutic. So when you think about presbyopia, that falls in that category. We're all going to get presbyopia. It's a giant market. There are 2 billion people globally who have that issue. And there are a lot of products that are coming to late stage development activities in that space. I think myopia is a gr another great example of something that really is more therapeutic than a convenience. But, but you know, everybody's looking at it because of the size of the market. And we're, we're still struggling to get something that works effectively. But um, dry eye is very crowded at this point, but, but the standard of care is not as good as one would wish. And there's a lot of room for improvement. And, uh, and I think when I look at the back of the eye, the anti-bed jets are, are very effective. Everybody's looking for longer duration. So you can find a way to do that instead of having to thread the needle and find something that works only for the people who don't respond to anti-bed jet. And that's an interesting space too, if you can do drug delivery for longer duration. And, particularly avoiding inflammation. When we're looking at a fundamental tough disease uh, like retinal disease or glaucoma, at what stage would you invest? If, if there's wonderful science or do you need human proof of concept, what stage, Holly, when, when do you uh, step in? 
Yeah, gosh, that's a hard question. Um, I think, you know, it, it kind of, um, I mean, where it, it, it's hard, I think of like retinal diseases and, you know, because, you know, Avastin, Lucentis, Anti-VEGF, ILE are so good, you know, um, it makes it, you know, sort of raises the bar. Now, having said that, they don't cure the disease, right? About, you know, 50 to 60% of patients, you know, aren't, you know, great responders to anti-VEGF therapy. So there is room but, you know, it, it's really hard given the standard of care has advanced. I think, you know, for me, it's always, you know, there has to be a reason to believe, right? And that reason to believe um, that it could work, right? Because, you know, we're always investing on imperfect information. Yeah, ha- there has to be something, right? And so it can be preclinical, right? If there is a good model of the disease that, you know, at least, you know, you think at least somewhat recapitulates what the, the disease process is and you see, you know, a drug versus, you know, vehicle or versus a positive control, you know, really help um, address that disease process, that can be enough, right? But there are sometimes, you know, like I I think about, again, you know, in the AMD space, there just aren't great models, right? And so then you sort of say, okay, well, it's hard to have that conviction or that reason to believe maybe, you know, it's that target, or maybe it's that that specific thing that that makes you say, okay, I I think there's enough here to, to make that bet early. Uh, but sometimes, you know, it, it does help to have some human data to, to then sort of tip you over the line if you can't find that reason to believe as a, you know, it, within preclinical data. And so, um, so it really just depends. I think it's very different de- depending on sort of the disease area, but even within a specific disease area, right? I think of glaucoma, IOP is a great sort of surrogate measure, but, you know, there are interesting neuroprotectants that, that people are thinking about where IOP isn't the relevant measure. And then the question is, okay, well, what is the reason to believe for, you know, that, that a neuroprotectant can work and, you know, can you get that conviction, you know, using, you know, preclinical models or do you need clinical data? But, it, but to me, it always comes down to for that given indication or that target or that specific drug, you know, is there something that gives you that reason to believe that gives you that conviction to say, okay, I'm, I'm ready to make that now. Yeah. Thanks for the, the uh, we're just, we're going to wrap up here in another moment, but Bruce, do you do preclinical? Do you need clinical? Yeah, we're we're sort of at the other end of the spectrum, Bill. We're at the, the earliest we would invest in a in a drug would be post human proof of concept, and we can define that fairly broadly, particularly in an indication or an approach where the mechanism has been reasonably well established. Uh, in an area where the mechanism is a little bit less established, the data burden for us goes up. Medical device and uh, diagnostics we're effectively more of a growth investor. So we're waiting for FDA approval, maybe even a little bit of revenue, could be a very little bit, literally a million or two, but something where, first of all, we can see how the payment reimbursement's working or the self-pay model is working. And there are some actual real live customers we can go out and talk to. Okay, thanks for that. Um, Team, we're gonna wrap up. Um, Very uh, helpful uh, set of insights and comments. Um, and so I think as we continue to be committed, uh, no kidding, to innovation in the space, having uh, access to capital and having investors that care um, is critical. And I know each of you cares, and thankfully we have access to capital. So uh, we'll uh, stay committed to innovation in the ophthalmic space. And that will wrap up our panel discussion. Thank you. Thanks, Bill. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. And thank you to our host and panel for sharing your insight. We hope our listeners were able to glean some valuable information. 
If you enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe, rate, and share wherever you listen. Would you like to be featured on our podcast? Visit OIS.net and click Get Involved to submit your information. Until next week, keep innovating.